John 15 today, uh, the Gospel of John, not, not that I have uh, exhausted John 14, certainly. Um, uh, I was read a quote, this is a paraphrase, but where somebody pointed me to a quote this week that speaking of the Gospel of John, uh, said that uh, it was shallow enough or simple enough for the, for the child to frolic and enjoy its depth but of a depth sufficient to drown the most uh, humble scholar. Uh, and I'm just finding that very much true. Uh, I think I told someone last week, you think you're deep and um, you think you're neck deep uh, in the rich theology of John's gospel and then you glance down and you realize you just stepped into a puddle uh, because it's far exceeding that. Uh, I was raised up in the northern end of the county and spent most of my young life in Snow Creek uh, some of you know where that is, and uh, we did everything from dam it up to uh, everything else. In fact, I told somebody one time we had a game warden had to come with ditching dynamite to blow our dam apart because we stopped the creek up and the cows couldn't get no water downstream. Um, and I mean, we built a little check dam and everything and built it up with broom sage and blue clay and sand and put rocks in there and built this thing up, and we made us a swimming hole. Uh, I lived my whole young life uh, in water mostly knee-deep. But by the time I was a, a teenager, uh, we were swimming in a different place, uh, up 115. Uh, we just knew it as the rock quarry, uh, but the estimates were it was between 150 and 300 feet deep. Uh, and we would jump off a rock 40 feet above the water and dive off into that rock quarry. So we graduated from our little puddles uh, to uh, something that was far uh, deeper than we could ever have fathomed the bottom of it. Uh, fast forward to years ahead from that, years later from that, uh, I remember in the service they uh, announced we was having a swim call and we were somewhere in the Indian Ocean near the equator. Um, and I remember we were jumping off the side of the ship and we'd climb back up on a cargo net and I asked the quartermaster uh, what the depth was uh, where we were swimming and he said 15,000 feet. <laughs> So I went from uh, knee deep at Snow Creek to 100 to 350 feet deep at the rock quarry to 15,000 feet deep um, in the ocean. And one thing I realized in that is that I'm only using the top part of it. Uh, I have no idea what's 15,000 feet, neither did I have an idea what was at 300 feet. In fact, uh, legends in that end of the county claimed that there was a crane at the bottom of the rock quarry with the boom at a 45. And, and divers saw that at 100 feet. And so they went down 100 feet, saw the boom of the crane that was washed in when it flooded so fast. But I never saw that. Uh, whether it was in the creek or the rock quarry or the ocean, I swam around in the top six or eight feet of water. And that's the way I feel about the Gospel of John. Uh, about the most we're doing at most is swimming around in the top six or eight feet, maybe just over our head, but we have no idea of the depths of what's being unfolded here uh, in regards to Christ. And that's the way I feel about the text today. Uh, from the beginning of my Christian life, uh, I knew there was something about abiding. Uh, I remember uh, reading passages that spoke of my, me as a son of Adam. And it, when it described the sin of Adam, I had no difficulties whatsoever in relating my organic union to Adam. I am a son of Adam. I am stricken 
with all the temptations and all the inclinations of the fallen man. I recognize him readily. But then when I read the scriptures that says he has been crucified with Christ and I have been raised as a new creation, somehow church taught me that that was somehow less of a union. And I remember thinking to myself, is that true? Is that any less real than my union with Adam? True, it is to be understood and believed and embraced by faith, but is faith somehow less real than reality? Am I, in fact, joined to Christ? And so I began to look through the scriptures and see if that was real or is that some future event that will be mine and I, by faith I hold on to that reality or is it a present reality that I am joined to Christ? And then I came across passages like Romans 6 in the first number of verses that said that unless I am crucified with Christ, I cannot be raised with Christ. So there must be some prior union before my resurrection with Christ. There must be some prior joining that happens for that to happen. If I'm not united with him in his death, then I can't be united in his resurrection. And I'm certain that I'll be united with him in his resurrection. But if that can't be without a uniting with him in, in his death, then there must be something more than just something to be believed. There must be something real and authentic about being joined to Christ. And then I looked through the New Testament and I found that uh, I think in the epistles alone, uh, the phrase in Christ is mentioned 91 times. And then if you add with Christ or through Christ, it extends out to nearly 120, in some cases, 150 different times. There, the, the, the language is used to express some union in Christ, through Christ, with Christ, by Christ even. And so it began to dawn on me that there is something real about this, that it is not just some philosophical or theological concept to be grasped by the believer. It is something to be experienced as a reality in the life of the believer. And so my spiritual senses were attuned to, to that reality. And then is it a reality in my life? Am I experiencing fruits that are a part of this union with Christ? And then there's the overwhelming evidence that it's an important reality for Christians who understand in that of all the things God might have ordained as ordinances for his church perpetually, the two that he gave us, the observance of the Lord's Supper and baptism, both communicate the same realities, union, death with Christ, resurrection with Christ, partaking of Christ taking the elements of Christ into the body and partaking, as it were, symbolic of our a real union with Christ. And that's what Jesus begins to unfold in the, in the analogy that he uses in John chapter 15 of a vine. Interestingly enough, in chapter 14, Jesus has said in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says, that no one comes to the Father but through me. So I am these three things, and there is no access to the Father apart from coming through me, who, are, who, who is, the, is in essence all of these three. He is, 
He is the way, the truth, and the life. And as you go through this passage, the rest of verse 14, it seems as Jesus demonstrates or unfolds how it is that he's the way. Essentially by saying, I am one with the Father. The Father and I are one. And he unfolds that. And then in verse 16, he indicates here the truth. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you a helper that he may be with you. That is the spirit of truth. So, and, then he, and then he blends, as it were, Father, Son, and Spirit all in operation in this activity. So he's laying out in a sense that in the way that he is the truth. And I think in this passage, in John chapter 15, he begins to unfold the reality that he is indeed the life. And so let's read that together. I'm going to read through verse 11. Uh, Someone has said that verse 12 through 17 speaks of the disciples' relationship to one another, 18 and following their relationship to the world, and that these introductory verses are exclusively speaking of their relationship to Christ. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You, speaking of the disciples, are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatsoever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciple. Just as the Father has loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that your joy, my joy, may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, as I've already described, we can wade into the brook this morning and be ankle deep. But Father, with your grace, we can wade out into the bottomless depths of your glory. And so Father, help us to do that. We know that we will not exhaust your glory as manifest in the words of Christ here. But Father, let us taste it this morning. As Moses said, Father, hide us in the cleft of the rock of Christ and show us your glory. Let us see that glory this morning. We need you for that in the hearing and in the speaking. So have your way in these moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I think everything's built around uh, this passage in the very first verse, which I think he lays out the two essential truths uh, upon which this analogy is given. He says two things. Number one, notice that he qualifies it. He doesn't say, I am the vine or I am a vine. He says, I am the true vine. I'm the true vine. And then the second thing is, my father is the vine dresser. The implication is the father is the the owner of the vine. He's the master of the vineyard, as it were. 
And Christ is the vine, as it were, that we're planted, the true vine through which he goes on to explain uh, fruit is born. And so he lays down those two essential principles. And that was interesting as well, because if you've done any research at all, you'll, re- you'll realize that Israel is often referred to as a vine. In fact, in Psalm uh, 80, I think it was Psalm 80, yeah, Psalm 80, verse 8, uh, he speaks, the psalmist there speaks of Israel as a vine that was taken out of Egypt and planted in the promised land. He goes on <clears throat> to talk about how that vine had been unproductive. In fact, it had out not lived up to the expectations. Isaiah, particularly in chapter 5, verse 1 and 7, <clears throat> God through the prophet rebukes Israel. In fact, he goes into a long parable and says, I had a vineyard and I planted a vine and I cultivated all around it. And I came and when I ought to have expected fruit, there was none. And in fact, it had been become decayed and it had been deteriorated to the point that where he was about to open the gates and knock down the hedges that protected it and allow the judgment to come in upon his vineyard. He's speaking of Israel there. And so I think when Jesus says here, I am the vine, I am the true vine, I think the implication is there is, I wouldn't say a false vine, but there is a vine from which people believe that they might have life. And that vine, Israel, might have been shadowing what is the true vine in whom they truly have life. And so I'm the true one. You're attached to Israel and you think that because you're attached to Israel that you have life in the vine which is Israel. But I called Israel out and called them my vine because by planting it and through that vine the Messiah would come who is the true vine. Jesus is contrasting himself with what they believed Israel to be, which was the vine, which was the source, their attachment to Israel, their proselytizing of others and bringing them into Israel and circumcising them and making them a part of Israel, granted to them blessing in life and all the promises God had given to Israel. And Jesus, is, I think, is in essence saying here that was, that was shadowing or that was a type, a type, as it were, of the true vine in which true life would come. So he lays out initially that there is a con contrast here. I am the true vine. I think in some way we've made the same error in our generation. We say things like Protestantism is the vine. Presbyterian, uh, Presbyterianism, Methodism, uh, Baptist, the denomination is the vine. Church attendance is the vine. Bible study is the vine. Prayer is the vine. We substitute things, and that, those are, that is not the vine. They're, they're instruments through which we might exercise the life provided in us through the vine, but they are not themselves the vine. And that's exactly what Israel was doing, I believe. In fact, it's interesting to me that upon the face of the temple, there was a representation of a grapevine. Israel understood clearly that we're the vine. And they took that to themselves as some sort of guarantee of a relationship with God. But that was always in covenant with God, dependent upon an obedience to God, perfect obedience to God. And he provided a sacrificial system through which they would point towards Christ, but through which they would relate to God and prevent the judgment of God upon them. But they abandoned even that. 
And they thought they had life in themselves. And Christ puts himself down in this moment as the true vine. Let me say this to everybody here this morning. If you're abiding, if you're abiding and representing that you abide in Jesus Christ and you are not drawing from Christ your life, then you are going to be compared later on to these branches that have no life in them. Jesus Christ is the vine and he is the true vine. Secondly, that he mentions here is that his father is the vine dresser. I wrote this in my notes. He's a, he plants, cares for, prunes, brings about optimal fruitfulness. It is the Father at work through the Spirit, through the Word of Christ, through Christ Himself, Father, Son, and Spirit operating here. But it, Jesus attributes to the Father the, the, the activity of making the branches in the vine fruitful. So it is the Father who is pruning those branches that are abiding in the vine, drawing their strength and life from the vine. It is the Father that is cutting off the wasted growth. I was reading an article about a vine, a grapevines, and they said, if you just leave them alone and let them grow, they'll produce abundant fruit. But the quality of it is subpar. In fact, they go in and they trim and they prune and they take off all the branches that are absorbing any amount of life at all from the vine so that the fullness of the life may concentrate in fewer, fewer, uh, fewer grapes but of greater quality. And sometimes it even produces a greater quantity of those grapes. So there's a pruning that takes place and Jesus says, I am the true vine. In fact, vine, this is in fact the last of his I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am the true vine. I am the true vine. And my father is the pruner and the cleaner and the, and the one who sees to the fruitfulness of those branches that are abiding in the vine. He does that, he says later on, in a very specific way. So I am the vine. My father is the pruner or the caretaker, as it were, of the vine. Now, verse 2, he gets into this, and there's some overlap and repetition in these, but there are nuances that he seems to add along the way. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, I know that I've heard people use these verses in regards to the believer's security, the perseverance of the saints. And they'll say things like, well, right there it says plainly, they were once abiding in him, they're no longer abiding in him, producing fruit, and he cuts them off. Then they'll go even further later on and say, not only does he cut them off, but they're dried up and they're worthless and they're going to be burned up in hell someday. Well, it's true that those apart from Christ will endure the, the horrors of an eternal hell, but I don't think that's exactly what he's teaching here. Verse 2, he says, every branch in me. I think in relation to Israel as divine, there may have been those who thought that Israel and even its prophecies of a Messiah were somehow connected to this vine and through Israel that they would be life-giving. And even, even if they accepted that Jesus was the Messiah, which they did, they've already been shouting, Hosanna to the Lord, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, only later now to be calling crucified. So they were giving the evidence that they were abiding as it were in Christ. But there was no fruit of that and Jesus says, of these that do not bear fruit, he takes them away. And then of those who are abiding in Christ in the branch, abiding in the vine, he says, that bears fruit, verse 2, he prunes or cuts away 
those things so that it may bear more fruit. There was one I was reading this week, there is a, some who translate the term used there as a, could also mean a lifting up. And they were proposing that he was saying that every branch that uh, bears fruit, he lifts it up so that it may bear more fruit. But I think the idea here is that he cuts away what is drawing away energy towards fruitlessness. He prunes those things away. He cleans them. And he makes them, he makes them able to bear more fruit or a better fruit. And so that's what happens if you're abiding. The implication for me is I can be abiding in Christ and allow, and things are in my life that are preventing, as it were, or obstructing the, the fullness of the flow of the life of Christ that would produce Christ-likeness or God-glorifying fruit in my life. And the Father, as the vine dresser, comes in and he starts cutting those things away. I think a New Testament sanctification idea that would help with that is that there is a crucifying of the old man, a systematic, lifelong putting away of the old man and living in the fullness of the new. That is the cutting away of all that is hindering the full producing of fruit. The Father, Jesus says, does that. And for, the bride, and for those branches that think they are abiding in Him but actually are not abiding, He takes those away. Let them not... Let them not draw as it were and present themselves as living from the vine they are not and so they are taken away but those who are he prunes and he cleans that they might bear more fruit he says directly I think to his disciples here you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you he says later on again in regards to the word so I'm proposing this morning that the instrument of of the vine dresser the vine uh, uh, the the father the one who prunes the instrument with which he prunes is the word of Christ because he says to his disciples you've already been pruned you're abiding in me you've been pruned because the word of God the word of Christ is the instrument of God to prune you you're not done yet You've got some other things in your life that are a hindrance to you bearing the fullness of the life of Christ in your own. And the Father will continue His work. We know that He has in Peter. In fact, uh, you remember uh, when Peter, uh, Jesus says to Peter, the, the devil has desired to sift you. And He says, I have, I have allowed. He doesn't say I've allowed him to, but He says I prayed for you. And when you return, the implication is in God's providence and in the Father's pruning, I'm going to allow the devil to come in and 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 illustrate or demonstrate all the little leaders in your life as a branch that are keeping you from bearing fruit to God. And so I'm going to use the devil now as an instrument to, to, to cut off those things in your life. And then when you've returned, he talks about him and he's prayed that his faith would hold. So you are already clean, he says to the disciples, because of the word I have spoken to you. Now listen to what he says to them. Abide in me, and I in you. There's that union. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so, that, so neither can you unless you abide in me. The imagery there was striking to me. Uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, and I in you. So there's a union. It's not just his abiding in us. And it's not us abiding in Him, it's the interaction of His abiding in us and us in Him. There is a union there that is established, really foreshadowed throughout Scripture 
uh, even in the sacrificial system, but ultimately demonstrated in Christ and certainly in the epistles. There is a union spoken of there. Abide in me and I in you. And then he gives this imagery as though a branch not abiding in me could bear fruit. I don't know about you, but I've, I've walked in the woods a lot in my life and I've not yet one time saw a branch laying by itself that had fruit on it, whether it be a hickory nut or a peach. When it doesn't have access to the tree and the root and the trunk and the vine, it doesn't live. And that's what he's saying. Without this union, you will not produce any fruit. You will not have life flowing into you. The, the life that produces fruit in you is my life. This is why I say he's unfolding now what he meant earlier. I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is how I am the life. Life resides in me. I am the life. And you experience life insofar as you are joined to me. Now, if on the surface you appear to be churchgoer, moral person, law keeper, if on the appearance you give appearances as though you're attached to me, you can still not bear fruit because you're not drawing from the life of Christ. And there believe, I believe there are people sitting in churches all over America and perhaps around the world today who are giving appearances as branches, but in reality they are not joined to the life who is Christ. And as a result of that, they cannot bear fruit. Not unto God. Here's where I think we mess up sometimes. We become fruit judges in the sense that we evaluate any moral activity or any act of charity as clearly evidence of fruit. Well, I got news for you. There are people who are completely outside of Christ that perform charitable organizations. In fact, they do wonders for things around the world in feeding and many other charitable activities, but they are not fruit to the glory of God. That's what Jesus is speaking here. And if you're not abiding in Christ, if it is not in union with Christ, drawing the life of Christ, as it were, into our own lives, then the most charitable of works are not fruit. Not according to the estimation of the vine dresser who knows what fruit glorifies him. Abide in you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. He goes further in verse 5 now. Notice the nuances. There's going to be an added direction or a, a pointing of our thinking here. Again, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, there's the union again, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I was thinking about this this week as well. Uh, if Jesus has already in the previous chapter established as, as overwhelmingly profound as it is the triune nature of God, that He is indeed God, if He is, if he is that, then the vine grows out of a, a trunk which is attached to a root 
And, and the root gets into, I think, the triune nature of God. It is, he is drawing the very life of God is what is circulating in the person of Christ. And it comes up in a trunk and it stretches out in a vine. And then by his grace, he calls those and attaches them. For Gentiles, we've been grafted in. The Jews were a part of the vine, but they lost their connection to the vine and thought Israel was the great vine and not Israel's Messiah. And they began to show no growth and he cuts them away. And then for we Gentiles, he grafts us in according to the New Testament as well. But he is life because he is God. It is the root of Christ's life. That is what means that life is in him. And he's saying to us in this passage, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. I was thinking about this this morning, but our, our evangelism should be first and foremost a call for them to be joined or be grafted into the vine. Not, not to be grafted into us. We're branches. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to, in fact, you pile that on me and I become less fruitful because now my energy gets distributed amongst a bunch of people. That's what we do in our evangelism today. We go out and proselytize people and make them our church folks and we're connecting them to the church and the church is the branch and the church gets weaker and weaker because its energy is expended very quickly. Evangelism ought to seek to see people grounded or grafted to the true vine, not ourselves. We are all branches. We are gathered together and we are all branches forming a vineyard, as it were, of God. All dry, drawing our life from Christ, who is the branch, who is the vine, I mean, of whose life we share. So I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. I think he's returning to the practice of vineyard keepers. When they go in and prune their vineyards and take away all the dead stuff, it's dry. It's, it's not going to ever produce any fruit. Sometimes it'll even produce a little leaf, but they, they understand that without any fruit on there, eventually it won't even produce leaves. So they cut all those things off and as dried up pieces of branch, they're not fit for anything. They're not two before, so you can't build a house. <laughs> You can't, you can't build a box out of them. They're, they're literally worthless, so they burn them. So I think he's returning to the vineyard analogy here. I don't think this is per se a, com, a, a commentary in regards to those who are not connected to the vine being cast into the hell. We know that's true, but from other sources of Scripture. But I think he's just returning to the analogy here. And the same is true of us. If anyone doesn't abide in him, let me say it this way. If you do not abide in him, then you are thrown away as a branch that dries up. And of course, they're useless. They gather them, they burn them, and, see, and so will you be to the kingdom of God and for the glory of God. You will be useless. And I think there's a lot of folks... Uh, these days claiming to be believers in Jesus Christ, but they are drawing nothing of their life from Christ. Uh, I was sharing uh, with the young folks this morning, but the idea of trusting Christ at a distance, accepting even the idea that he died for your sins, 
but then saying, okay, I'll believe that and therefore I am secure for heaven someday and so I can live the rest of my life. And being completely guided, even if it's in a moral way by your own strength and power, makes you not a branch. You're not a branch if you do that. Not a life-giving, not, not a branch drawing from the, from the life of Jesus Christ. Now, drawing from that life may produce a life, a more moral life, and it may produce a, a different kind of life, and it certainly should produce that. He goes on to say that in regards to commandments and obeying my commands. So he goes on to say that, but the life is coming from Christ, not, not looking at Christ and, and going away just out of pure gratitude for what you saw there and deciding in your own strength to live a more moral life. That is not fruit unto God. To see Christ and to understand and to be brought into union with Christ connects you to the life of Christ. And when you rise up to new life with Christ, then it is the life of Christ producing fruit in you now. Those, he says later on, are evidences that you are indeed a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ. So if anyone does not abide in me, is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Verse 7, if you abide in me, coming back to the word, and my words abide in you, ask what, whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. It seems as though he's explaining now more precisely what he said in chapter 14, whenever he said in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. Well, there are those who are operating in the flesh, who are, who are branches in appearance only, but not in life, who would take that and say, that's, hey, that's a, that's a blank check. I just, I just say whatever it is I want, and at the end say, in Jesus' name. And that's the signature on the check, and he's bound by your, by your comments, your statements, to fulfill all the things that you wanted in that prayer request. That's the way it's taken by a lot in the world. But here Jesus seems to be unfolding that now and qualifying it. What is the qualifications? You abiding in me and my words abiding in you. Then ask whatever you will, and I will do it. I was struck by that. Do you realize... The degree of that abiding and the degree to which the life of Christ is flowing into you, shaping you, creating in you holy desires, a desire for the display of the glory of God, shaping your very nature to want to behold and to display the glory of God. In that, in that realm, whenever you ask out of that life, why would he not give you that thing? Because I can tell you right now, if you're experiencing that union with Christ and the life of Christ that way is flowing into your life and the Father is pruning away all those things that would use up uh, uselessly that energy of Christ, that life of Christ and making you fruitful, the fruit of that will be prayers that glorify God and have as their highest aim the glory of God and the display of His glory. So you're not going to be praying for that big shiny Cadillac or that massive mansion at the lake, or that great mountain home. You're not going to be praying for things like that because you and you're so overwhelmed in the life of Christ and beholding the glory of Christ to such a degree that those things are irrelevant to you because your desire is for something out of this world and not in this world. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying here. That's the 
condition, the qualifying condition for the promise that he made in chapter 14. And it ought to be announced to the world and particularly to the prosperity teachers who are leading millions astray. I talk every now and then to my brother in Katali, Kenya. And years ago, it was Catholicism that he said they would run into when they would go out to evangelize and to preach the gospel. But he said more and more over the past decade, it is the gospel of prosperity that has creeped into the minds and the hearts of carnal men. And they received Jesus as a promise that there will be some guaranteed earthly prosperity ahead. And he says he goes into that environment and says things like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Christ bids you, brother, come and die. And they walk away. They're not branches in the vine. It is not the life of Christ flowing and transforming their very life. They have not been joined to Christ. That's why I said that Jesus says in John 14, I tell you, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. You're not coming to the Father, but by me. You're not coming to the Father, but by be joined to the vine through which the life of the Father, Son, and Spirit flows to you and through which you are joined to God. Verse 8, my Father is glorified by this. What glorifies the Father? That you bear much fruit. So the Father is pruning and cleaning the vine to his own glory. Now, here's where I think faith and having been joined to the vine comes in. If that's not your highest desire, then you're not going to like the pruning. If, you're, if, you're, if you say you're abiding in Christ for your own earthly advantage and your own comfort and your own prosperity, the glory of God has nothing in, to do in your mind. It is not your highest desire to see the glory of God. Then this, then this doesn't work. In fact, he says here, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. So the pruning is so that the, you would bear fruit and the fruit bearing is so that your father would be glorified. Well, I want to bear fruit. Why? Because I just want to be fruitful? <laughs> because I just want you to know that, I bear, that I'm bearing fruit? No. I want my life to bear fruit because I desire the glory of God. I have beheld it. I have experienced it. I am in union with Him through Christ Jesus. And that glory is all-consuming and overwhelming to me. And all that He would display it more fully. Therefore, Father, prune my life that I may bear fruit. Lord, don't prune me so I can be more fruitful than my neighbor or more fruitful than the guy down the road. I want to do more good stuff and get more acclaim from the church. I want to have a position of service or lead in the church in some way. So Lord, prune my life to make me bear fruit so they'll see that and they'll put me in the place I want. Forget it. That is a, to know glory to God. God is glorified by this, that you Branches who are drawing from the life of Christ and joined to the life of Christ are bearing fruit unto the glory of the God by whom that union is accomplished. That's different. Verse 9, just as the Father has loved me. Think about that, the degree of that. The perfections of the love between the Father and Son. The holiness and the righteousness of it. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. I, that's been haunting me all week. Especially in that it is manifested by obeying his commandments. John in the epistle says it very clearly. 
If you, say, if you say you love God and hate your neighbor, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. You can't love God and do the thing which God expressly forbids you to do. And by the way, empowers you to do the very thing He commands. Love your brother. And love him as Christ has loved you. Well, Christ is saying all this just before he goes to the cross and provides the means by which these things become a reality in my life. He's not saying love your neighbor in your own strength. No, he's saying love your neighbor in the strength that's provided from the vine, from the life of Christ. Just as the Father loved me, I've loved you. And then he tells them, abide in that love, in my love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments... If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Uh, that's interesting to me because some people would say, well, if you want to stay in the love of God, you, be, you, you can't sin. You can't ever disobey any commandments. The more you obey the commandments and the more perfectly you obey them, the more fully in the love of Christ. I don't think that's what he means here. I think he means that abiding in the love of Christ, being joined to the vine, having the life of Christ flowing through us and the Father sanctifying us, transforming us to that image, will absolutely produce a desire to obey the words of Christ and an understanding of what those words involve. Let me say something today, church. If you're a believer and you claim to be abiding in Christ, is there an interest in obeying Christ? There ought to be in, in all of our lives. At the very minimum, there ought to be a conviction when our fleshly man overpowers us in the moment and we resist obeying Christ. Thank God in those moments we are attached to the vine and the life of Christ is ours and we are secure. But the Father comes in in those moments and begins to clean and prune away those things in our life that are obscuring or, or becoming an obstacle to our obedience to Christ. What's the old hymn? Jesus, I love thee, but help me to love thee more. That's a paraphrase of it. There's a recognition that, yes, I love Christ. I have tasted of the life of Christ. And there is a desire in my heart as a result of that union to be obedient to Christ. But, oh, I see in my life this reluctance in the old man and the, and the fear of the, of the sacrifice involved in following and obeying Christ here. Oh, Lord, I love thee, but, Lord, make me love thee more. Incline my heart to love thee. That's what I believe Jesus is attaching here. Abiding in him, abiding in his love, and obeying his words. So why does Jesus tell us these things? Verse 29 of chapter 14, he says, Now I've told you this before it happens, so that when it happens you may believe. I think Jesus is telling them these things maybe even more so for information now because when he goes and accomplishes the mission of the cross and the, he goes away and the Holy Spirit comes, he says specifically in those verses, he will bring to remembrance all that I've said unto you. So I'm, I'm laying down this unfathomable reality and overwhelmingly shocking truth to you that I know while I'm speaking, you have no capacity for grasping the fullness and the glory of it. But I'm telling you so that when the Spirit comes, He may bring, bring, bring that to remembrance. And here's why that is so important. Verse 11, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. Not, not just to make you joyful, but that you might be partakers now of what I joy in. Ever wonder about that? What, 
what rejoiced Jesus? What, what was it that Jesus beheld in his own heart that for him was a joy so overwhelming that he endured the cross looking ahead to the joy set before him? What made Jesus fully and overwhelmingly happy? He says, I want that in you. I want that in you. I didn't come to make you happy. I came that you might know my happiness. <laughs> That's a very different statement. Very different. And not only that we might know these things, he says, but that that joy may be made full or may be made complete in your life. Here's why I think this grasping this union Abiding in Christ, yielding to the sanctifying power of the Spirit through the Word of God, obeying Christ. These, this is why I think these things are so challenging for Christians. And this is why. Because your idea of joy is not Jesus' idea of joy. I mean, He's saying to you, I'm, I'm telling you these things so that you may experience my joy and that that joy may become full in you, that you may be overflowing. The term used here has the idea of filling a vessel all the way up to its top and not stopping at the top, but it might flow over the top. You could say that you might be being filled with my joy. I'm telling you this because this is critical for you to be feeling and experiencing what rejoices me. And that is your greatest joy. We've been talking about Edwards on Sunday nights. But that's what the catechism says, Westminster Catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him, him forever. And I'm always struck by Edwards' early realization that his highest and greatest joy was infinitely linked with God's glory, his highest glory. And Edwards didn't see a distinction between those two things. The display of God's glory is my highest joy. The more he's glorified, the more I'm joy. And the more I rejoice in his glory, the more he's glorified. Oh, it's, it's almost like an infinite cycle of the infinite glory of God and the enjoyment of his people who desire and enjoy seeing that glory. I can confess this to you. The reason I don't look more like Christ than I do today and the reason you don't like look more like Christ than you today is because you haven't assigned the same value to the joy of Christ. You've substituted another joy in that place. And that is not a compelling enough joy to cause you to pursue this self-crucifying love of Jesus Christ. And you'll never know that unless you abide in the vine. And as the life of Christ comes into us, our, what rejoices this heart and this life, which is bound up, as it were, with Christ, are the things that made Christ rejoice, which was the glory of his Father. He's going to say that later on here in chapter 17, especially, Lord, I have, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you sent me to do. Now glorify me with yourself, with the glory I had before the foundation of the world. Jesus was rejoicing in the glory of the Father. And that's the rejoicing that he wants for us. That's why he's telling us these things. This is what I mean by wading in ankle deep in Snow Creek and swimming in 15,000 feet of water in the Indian Ocean. There's 15,000 feet here easy. But there's enough water for even the most mature, uh, most, the earliest and the youngest Christian began to taste of the glory of God. And it is so transformational. 
Uh, I was sharing to someone uh, recently about a, a good man that I know, a godly man, uh, who, who clearly had the gift of evangelism. And he had that to such a degree that almost wherever he began to preach, people would start coming. Almost everywhere he went, there was explosive growth. But as soon as he left, it immediately fell off and went back sometimes even lower than it was before he came. And I said I felt sorry for him because the church misidentified him uh, as, a, as a shepherd of the sheep, as a, as a pastoral gifts for evangelism. And they brought the evangelist in to fill the church up and, and his gifts worked. The church filled up. But Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, there was, no, there was no word of Christ by which the Father was pruning those vines. And when he left, it looked like a burnover over wasteland. And I felt sorry for him because he had been utilized in an area where he wasn't called and gifted to serve in that capacity. But I felt sorry for the church as well because it thought that full seats meant a living church. And they found out very quickly that full seats do not necessarily indicate a living church. Transform lives from those who are abiding in Christ is what demonstrates and what glorifies God in his church. That's our hope. And that's our prayer this morning. Stand with me. Respond to whatever the Lord is doing, speaking in your own hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the supernatural reality and gift that by your grace and by your providence, just as you chose Israel from among the heathen nations, not of any merit of their own, so you have chosen us without any merit of our own to plant us in Christ the life. Lord, I pray that more and more the fruit in our lives would not be a product of our self-discipline and our strength of determination, but that it would be a product of the life of Christ flowing into our hearts in full and overflowing in the producing of fruits. Through your word, you've even given us uh, the categories of those things in Galatians chapter 5. So, Father, we pray that there might be fruit in our lives, not that we can brag or compare ourselves to others, but, Father, that you might be glorified. There may be one in this room today that has not been planted in the vine who is Christ. Lord, I pray that by your grace and by your power you might call that one out of darkness today and graft them into this life of Christ and Father, for we who believe and have been grafted in and who are living our Christian lives with the power of Christ's life in us, Lord, help us more and more to put away the things that are hindrances. Father, help us to yield to the surgical hand of our Father as he sanctifies us through the Spirit and through your Word and that our lives might reflect Christ in his glory. Have your way in these moments, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.